On April 2, 2012, SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rosconi spoke with entertainment attorney Elliot Brown about securing theatrical adaptation rights and when it is and isn't necessary to do so. Hello, I'm SDC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. We're here tonight uh, with Elliot Brown, who I've known for a very long time, actually, about 17 years, um, and we're going to be discussing securing adaptation rights. Elliot, could you start with just a few, a brief overview of your experience with adaptations? Yeah, but am I really a master of the stage? <laughs> I'm an ink-stained, rational lawyer. That's it. Well, a- adaptations are the basis for almost all of the Broadway musicals that you work on. A ton of the movies, if you work on them, and an increasing number of straight plays. And by adaptations, of course, I mean taking another work, an underlying work, normally but not always a copyrighted work and um, and turning it into a new copyrightable work you know technically that's called a derivative work under the copyright act and we all can call it an adaptation for tonight's purposes okay and why do we have to get let's start with the beginning why do we need to get the rights at all well because really oh no okay. no one has ever accused me of talking too quietly that's the first time in my life so <laughs> I'll try and, and and no one has ever accused me of talking too slowly so I'm, if you can't hear me or if I'm going too fast oh, only one of those would be unusual um, so Having what was the question? So, just why do we have to get in, in? Why do we have to get rights at all, and what's involved in that? Well, as you know, um, uh, copyright is a form of property mentioned in the Constitution of the United States. It's protected by law, it's a, and it lasts now for a very long period of time. And owning a copyright in something is exactly the same, exactly the same as owning a piece of property. I mean, it's the reason we refer to underlying works in the movies and in the theater as uh, properties. You hear that term all the time, it's a property. Because it's, if it's copyrighted, it's a piece of property. And if you're the copyright owner of the work, you have essentially unlimited control of that work. I say essentially because there's some um, exceptions for people's rights to sing a song but we're not going to talk about singing a song tonight. And there's some exceptions for people to use, you know, a brief excerpt in a book or something like that, but we're not talking about fair use tonight. We're talking about adapting one kind of work to be another kind of work. And, well, that answers, that's fair enough. I could go on and on, but... (laughs) So let's start with what, what, in what instances do you not need to get... Uh, cop- get adaptation rights. Oh, fine. Let's talk about that. The yes. first and best instance is when the playwright has completely invented the play from scratch. Okay? So, what are the obvious examples of that? One hopes that the composer of a new musical has uh, written the tunes from scratch and not taken them from anywhere else. Although, of course, there are musicals which, you know, there are compilation musicals, Fosse, you know, musicals which do draw from copyrighted works. Mm-hmm. One hopes that the lyricist has invented all new lyrics, although that's not quite as easy because lyrics can, of course, draw from the underlying work. And in the case of most musicals, the book writer, in fact, has adapted an underlying work to turn Mm -hmm. into a book. Mm -hmm. So what's my conclusion from that? 
<laughs> and then there's public domain, of course, well, oh, too, uh, right? When, do, when is it not necessary? Yeah, okay. when is it not so, necessary? Sorry, that's where I was going with this. So, first of all, if you have something that's new and original, there's no underlying copyright. You don't have to get anything based on that. Secondly, my favorite example is that if you want to write a stage musical, a book of a stage musical, what you really want to do is find the only copy of a 15th century French <laughs> novel that you yourself have translated and that no one else has access to. Don't have to get rights in that, but of course the beauty of that is that no one else could see it or hear it until at least your musical comes out. Um, the third example of that would be to really be inspired by something. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, let's see. In the, in the world of theater, a wonderful, horribly treated, fantastic play a couple years ago was called Impressionism. Mm. And Impressionism, the inspiration for Michael Jacobs, was a lot of really wonderful um, artwork. And, you know, artwork is artwork. I mean, if he needed any of it in the set, that's a different, you know, to be on the stage, that's a different issue. But to be inspired by a work of art, there's a book, uh, a novel called The Soldier of the, Gr of the Great War. Um, fantastic novel. The, the uh, writer just went out of my mind. And that, the, that's a riff, that's a 400-page riff on uh, Giorgione's late medieval, early Renaissance painting, uh, La Tempesta. Okay, don't need, don't need any rights. Mark Halpern, I guess, was the author of that. Don't need any underlying rights for that. So we're talking about either A, originality, B, basing it on a work that's no longer protected by copyright, or C, being inspired by a copyrighted work in a way which does not infringe on the copyright. And whether or not something infringes on the copyright ultimately may end up being the judgment of a lawyer or heaven forbid a court. That would be the basis. Is there any, is there any, because that was actually another question of mine, is there any way to tell, like, is there a line that you cross between inspiration and adaptation? No, you, I know, as Potter Stewart said about pornography, I know it when I see it. And, uh, and, uh, and um, there's, there's, there's not, you know, copyright is the tangible expression of ideas. And the key words there is tangible expression. You can't copyright anything that's not written down. And ideas by themselves are not protectable. And if you write down an idea, you're going to be protected for how you express the idea, for your sentence structure. And you're going to be protected if you invent a character or a plot, but you're probably not going to, no, you're definitely not going to be protected under copyright law for the idea itself. Because ideas are not protectable, only expression tangible, written down, expression is protectable. Um, it, is there a line? No. You have to look at the adapt, the new work. We won't say adaptation. You have to look at the new work. You have to look at the old copyrighted work. And you have to make a determination about whether or not you think there was use of the underlying work such that rights have to be acquired in the underlying work. May we have questions or do you want to... We wait? will actually have questions at the end. We'll have a, a, a sizable portion of time. Okay. Um, 
better for the audience. See, and I talk so fast that they'll never be. <laughs> um, we okay. So we in this room have all read books, seen films, read magazine articles that we're convinced would make a great piece of theater. If we don't have an agent or an attorney, or if we'd like to do some leg some legwork before engaging a an attorney, what is the first step and the following step? Okay. Well, first of all, this is not a strict rule of thumb, but if your work at least in the United States. Remember, each country has its own copyright. And it's perfectly possible that something can be out of copyright in the United States mm -hmm. and not out of copyright in England or Germany or Japan or other places where you might want to put your show on. So you have to really be careful that you look at the whole scope of copyright. And there's ways to order copyright reports which can at least tell you what's been filed. They're expensive. Mm -hmm. They're upwards of seven hundred fifty or eight hundred dollars, but at least you can get some factual report on the underlying copyright issues. But what you can do, you're, you, pro you probably don't want to order a copyright report yourself. I mean, and also there's some. The copyright office has a website which I've seen, which might be marginally useful. In the United States, if you have a work from before 1923, don't take this as gospel. But there's a pretty good chance that a work bef that was copyrighted in the United States before 1923 is probably going to be available. In other words, if it was copyrighted in the United States properly before 1923, you're probably going to be able to uh, use that work. That's not legal advice, and that's not for sure. Yeah. Because, for example, they, in ways I don't quite understand, they claim to copyright that Mark Twain autobiography, which had never been published mm. before. It seems to me now, in retrospect, that what they were really copying were their emendations and their introductions and stuff like that. But I was never quite sure how they made that claim, but it had to do with the fact that the work had never been published before. In addition, you have to bear in mind the reason I gave my example before of a 15th century French novel that you translated yourself is that translations are copyrightable. So just because you have a work from 1735 doesn't mean you can use the addition to the work that you have in your hand because you have to worry about translation, mm -hmm. about ownership of translation. So what can you do yourself? Well, the first thing you can do on a novel is look at the copyright date on a book, not a novel. Look at the copyright date on the second or third page. On a movie, you know, you can watch the movie and see what copyright date, you see where I'm going with this, and see what the copyright date is. And, you know, you can figure that if it's after about 1923, that it's, there's a pretty good likelihood, not for sure, but a pretty good likelihood that it's going to be protected by copyright. But I say not for sure because in the ancient days that ended about 30 years ago, or more or so, you had to renew your copyright after 28 years. And if you failed to renew your copyright, uh, the work fell into the public domain in the United States. Okay, Other countries base their copyright on the death of an author plus a certain number of years, as we do now. So you could and can find works which have fallen into the public domain in the United States, which are not in the public domain anywhere else in the world. What else can you do? Well, you can, if you're, if you're pretty confident that the work you want to use is copyrighted, you can try to start to track down the copyright owners of the work. H how do you do it? Well, on a, the way I do it. <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a book, 
they insist on letters or emails these days. You write to the ancillary rights department of the book's publisher and say, I'd like to talk to the copyright owners of this book. I'm interested in turning it into a play or a musical. Uh, if it's a movie, heaven help you, because you probably don't want to do it yourself. You can write to the, you know, you can look on the IMDb database and try and figure out who the studio is, you know, who currently owns the picture. You know, it's really, there's not, going in cold to a movie studio these days is pretty tough. I can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can try and do your own legwork. Well, you know, lots of people come in and say, well, I talked to this person. He says he's, he's the owner of his grandfather's work. I think he probably is. You know, can we get the ball rolling whipping up a contract? And, you know, you sort of, you can do some legwork. I mean, me, it's my favorite. I love tracking down. Who, I don't know why. Maybe because it's not like being a lawyer. But I love tracking down who the owner of a copyrighted work is. Um, so it sounds like the process is a little bit different depending upon the source material. Well, yeah. I mean, you haven't got, you know, I mean, you're going to look for a copyright notice. Um, e even if you were using a, a, a song lyric, you know, you can figure out what the copyright is on a song. I mean, you've got to really start with the copyright notice on a copyrighted work. There's no other place to start but there. And is there a difference if a book says out of print? No. If it's in copyright, it's in copyright. Okay. And being in or out of print has nothing, nothing to do with whether something is in copyright or not. I mean, there's a lot of discussion these days about what's called in the book industry and I guess in all industries, orphan works. You all wear, you all know the term orphan work? No. You, hear, you hear orphan work a lot. You, you know the Google project to put every mm -hmm. book in the history of mankind online? And, you know, there were all kinds of lawsuits and all kinds of settlements, and Google couldn't do it. But there's a ton of works which are still under copyright where they can't figure out who the owner is. Okay? You got a book written by a novelist in 1935, dead in 1937. No wife, no children, no heirs, no nothing. The estate's long gone. You know, you can, the book's out of print. You know, you found it in your local library on the shelf. The, 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 um, the publisher is Boney and Livright. I'm joking. <laughs> Boney and Livright published, like, my favorite Ben Hecht's work and stuff like that. Boney and Livright. They're gone, okay? And those are called orphan works. Nobody knows... Nobody knows who their parents are. Nobody knows who their siblings are. They're off orphan works. It's a terrible problem. And you used to see, from time to time, you'd see, I haven't seen it for years, from time to time you used to see an ad in Variety from a movie producer that would say, we want to find the owner of this work. Um, please write us. We've done this. We've checked with this person. And their hope is that at least they would avoid punitive damages when somebody sued them for... Copyright infringement. I mean, I, I haven't, I myself haven't faced orphan works that much. Maybe because although I'm old, I'm not that old, and there's not not too many of my clients are dragging. I wish they would, but not too many of my clients are dragging 1935 novels off this bottom shelf of their local library and 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 writing musicals or plays mm -hmm. about them. With those orphan works, this is not on my list. But with those orphan works. I mean, what what is the what can the possible harm? What's the potential harm? And if you say, okay, okay, I can't find this, I can't find it. 
and and go ahead and doing it without securing any adaptation well, rights. Well, there are, there are substantial penalties for infringement of copyright. So if you make a mistake and you have, I'll pick a musical I didn't work on, and, and your orphan work has turned into wicked, right, and is turning out $70 jillion a month, you know, across the world, you're going to hear from somebody. Right. Whether... We're not, have, we're not saying that that happens. Whether, that, no, right, no, oh, right. that has nothing to do with Wicked. Right, right, right. I mean, right, right, I, right. I'm fine. That's a show where I haven't heard about any lawsuits on Wicked. I, that's a wonderful, fantastic show where I think all rights were completely cleared and I've never heard of any problem. I should have made up a name of the show. So I'll make up a name of the show next time. But, well, I was just trying to pick a, a really successful yeah. musical. Really successful musicals. <laughs> often, not always, not usually, but often spawn a lawsuit. And those lawsuits frequently are pe other people claiming they wrote them. And you hear it all the time. You hear it in Hollywood all the yeah. time. You hear it for hit songs all the time. You know, people spring out of the... There was famous series of law, of cases called Arnstein, Arnstein or Arnhem, Arnstein versus Porter where this guy, Arnstein, claimed that Cole Porter, on more than one occasion, snuck into his room at night, <laughs> went through his trunk of music, stole his melodies, and turned them into Cole Porter tunes. And those are cases that were studied in law school about arcane copyright concepts like access. You know, I mean, you know, I mean there's a bunch of stuff you've got to prove to prove a copyright claim. And among them is is access that somebody actually read your huh. copyrighted work and stole from it. So, and it's why a lot of writers in Hollywood um, won't accept scripts. Well, I mean, it's why because, it's why yeah. you're exactly right. Yeah. It's why when you cold submit to a television network or to a movie studio, you'll get back the letter you have to sign, which says in plain English. If we read your script, you agree that we, the studio, have already written the script. We're already working on the script. Oh, yeah. The script has been our idea since 1852. <laughs> this script has never been your idea, and you can't sue us for anything. Sign. Well, and people come in and say, should I sign this? And the answer is, you want the studio to look at your script? you got to sign it. I mean, would it hold up in court? I don't know. I've never seen a court case, but... That's, I mean, I said that a little starker. Well, maybe I didn't. Maybe I said it less starker yeah, yeah. than what it really says. But, yeah. Um, is there typically what are the rights holders' concerns? I mean, maybe there's not a typical. But no, there, you can do it. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a range of concerns. You have, for example, uh, people whose um, great-grandfathers wrote works who think they are their great-grandfathers, say, great-grandfather would never wanted this to happen. This would be where you can't change this note, you know, or you can't change this sentence, even though it refers to Teddy Roosevelt, and now it's said 100 years later. So you have issues of what you might call uh, control, creative control of the work. Well, the first thing, of course, I mean, that's... Yeah. One of the things, and you know, uh, in line with that, you'll have concerns, and I'm getting to the big one, of course. You'll have concerns that credit be properly given, that their great grandfather's name be, you know, large enough, and that he be credited large enough on it. And then, of course, you have issues of compensation, you know, and then that would be the biggest concern of 
most people, not all people, every once in a while you'll run across someone who is so happy that this lost work is going to come back to life that they'll be reasonable in a negotiation or that they'll recognize it. But more often, even though you're the first person to come across this property in 60 years, that the people who own it will be convinced that it's solid gold. And, you know, what you hear all, what you hear all the time is, oh, we're already working on that or no. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, let's see. It's not an exact answer to your question, but when I was first in my own practice, when I left my big law firm about 33 years ago, <clears throat> I had guys come in who had written a musical based on a Boris Karloff movie, a 1932 or 33 Boris Karloff movie, and it was great. It was written. Book, music, lyrics. It was done, and it was great. And I called up my friends at the studio, and I said, well, I got these guys who want to acquire rights in this movie. And they said to me, that's great. Is Michael well, Bennett... They said, that, sorry, say, tell me. I'll speak up. They said, that's great. Is is Michael Bennett directing it? <laughs> and I said, well, no, they haven't got Michael Bennett yet. And they said, oh, they said, well, is Bernadette Peters starring in it? I said, well, no, they haven't... She can't play this role. It's boring. Class. No, and they said, okay, okay, are the Schubert's producing it? No, the Schubert... This is the day's when the studios didn't want to do theater deals anyway, which maybe you're returning. And uh, then there was uproarious laughter. These are my friends on the other end of the line, and then they hung up the phone on me. So <laughs> you can see where the concerns right. sort of come in on everything. I mean, everybody thinks their property is vastly valuable. And if you call up a studio today about a 1941 movie that no one has heard about since 1942, mm -hmm. they're still going to treat it like Titanic. I'm just telling you right, right now. So. I just do want to mention we have a few. We have five seats here right at the front if anybody does want to move. Yeah, because I'm feeling really bad that I'm talking too quietly. But, <laughs> yeah, but we do call. have some seats up here. So, um, Okay, uh, we talked about this a little bit before. But if I wanted to do a loose adaptation, so not quite an inspired by, but a loose adaptation, working <laughs> off the writer's concept and ba basic story, but wanted to bring my own style and voice to it, <coughs> might a writer give that kind of freedom to a project without requiring complete adherence to the original work? And well, can a well, contract... I already misunderstand. Oh, sorry. Are you saying there's a copyrighted work, you want to acquire the rights in the copyrighted work, and will the owner of the copyrighted work give the writer artistic freedom? Can something in the contract be drawn up to that speaks to the flexibility? Or does the standard contract speak to that flexibility? No, the standard contract would normally speak to that flexibility. The standard contract would normally have language in it which would say the writer, the person acquiring the rights, has the right to change, adapt, delete from, add to, I could go on and on and on, the underlying work. But you do find works, of, of seriously, of really great importance, you know, literary and cultural and historic importance, where people, where they will, where there can be a range of stuff to from the underlying rights holders have approval of your play. Can't do anything until they see, if it's a musical, hear your book, music, and lyrics, or you know, see your script. Sometimes even at a reading, they want to actually see your script. That's one end of the range. That's total control. Very has to be a really important underlying work, and you and your producer really want have to want to do it because that you know somebody could spend a lot of time writing something and be shut down. But that those deals happen from time to time, down through deals which say that 
they're pretty mushy from a lawyer's point of view. They say that 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 the that the essence of the characters and the essence of the story can't be materially changed. Now, you, I can't really tell you what that means, although I write it from time to time. But it's an effort. <laughs> it's, an, it's an effort to protect the integrity of the underlying work. And it's subjective. I mean, it's pretty damn a, a subjective. rights holder I mean, can say, wait, you've materially changed things, but you haven't What you'd really all. try to do there, probably, is you'd try and give them some kind of a treatment of a fairly extensive mm. treatment and attach it and say, you know, this you know, this treatment is approved by the underlying rights owner, which means they can see where you're going with the characters, they can see where you're going with the plot, you know, and, you know, at that point it does turn into a little bit more of a enforceable legal document. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to try and be as specific as you can in these agreements. I mean, it's really, you can't, you know, if so many people, who not so many, I shouldn't put it that way, but there have been a large number of people in my practice who've walked in with a copyrighted work, and I've said, do you have a contract for this? And they've said, oh, I don't need it. The owner has been my best friend since second grade. <laughs> or the owner's mother brought me up. Or we love each other. Or we're married. I could go on and on and on and on and on. And of course, it always turns out to be a total catastrophe. And it's always my fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, we touched on translations a little bit. Um, and we know copyright varies from country to country, but if you are adapting a work from another country that has not been translated, is there any, you know, if it's in public domain, you can acquire those rights and, or not acquire the rights, you don't need the if rights? You, if you have a work that's in the public domain throughout the world, mm -hmm. you can do anything you want to it, period, end of sentence. Anything. You can do anything you want to Shakespeare. Anything. There's no exception to that statement as long as you're starting from his script. Okay, so. So then, if something is copyrighted in another country, and you want to do, there's no translation, you know, no English translation, and you want to translate it. Oh, sorry, I'm saying, if 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 um, you there's an international work that you like that has not been that is under copyright that has not been translated, do you have to acquire the same rights? in order to undertake a translation? Yes. Same thing. Yeah, in fact, I, I hadn't known until fairly recently, um, under at least, I can, I can only talk about U.S. copyright law. Under U.S. copyright law, technically, if you take a copyrighted work and in the privacy of your home, translate it or turn it into a play, you've already violated the person's copyright, even if no one ever sees it. Because you can't create, you're not permitted under copyright law to create a derivative work without the permission of the copyright owner. Now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I am not aware of any lawsuits of people, you know, who in the privacy of their own rooms have created a work who've been sued for doing that if they've never done anything with it. And, you know, you see a whole range of deals. You'll see deals... You'll see deals where owners who are protective of a copyrighted work will let, for example, a college or a not-for-profit mess around with it for three performances on three specific dates in one specific room in one specific city over and out. I mean, you know, that you know, I mean, that's another way of getting a copyright owner to come around to your point of view. Those agreements can be relatively um, informal. You know, you, you have the right to um, adapt this work 
for use only in this room, only in this city, only on these dates, and if you do anything else, I'll kill you. And you sign it. And that's it. Yeah. And anything different if you're, this is uh, again off, but anything different if you're de dealing with biography? I mean, not an actual biography, but a person's life. Well, it's interesting. Facts are not protectable by copyright. People used to think the phone book is protectable because of the order that stuff is in there, but it's probably not, not that it matters anymore. So facts are not protectable. Only the tangible expression of ideas is protectable. So if you take a person's life and you outline the facts of their life from a copyrighted work, the copyright owner is going to have a very hard time bringing a copyright action against you for that. But as soon as you start stringing words together, you see it all the time. You see it in the New York Times and those great, every once in a while they run columns of, of, of a copyright claim and you see what was in the copyrighted work and what the novelist or the, or the playwright did thinking that they were innocent. And you're shocked to see 150 similarities of expression. And you'll get killed under the Copyright Act for that. So if you, people who want to do stuff based on historical fact, I mean, I just tell them to go do a lot of research. I mean, do their own research. Go back to, go back to the original newspapers. You know, do whatever they can to do their own research. Now, from time to time, um, a lawyer will advise that you acquire rights in a biography. Why? Because you like the way things are expressed. You like the order of things. It's useful. Um, we often, or, or more than often, advise our clients if they want to write a work based on, on a famous living person, to acquire rights in that living person's life. Now, now I'm off my subject of copyright. Okay. That has nothing to do with copyright. But, you know, even if you could, uh, what's a, the President of the United States is not a good example, but if you picked a movie star, a current movie star, you probably could write a stage play about that movie star if they're famous, okay? But you run into really serious issues about using their name in advertising. You run into really serious issues about using their name if you sell T-shirts or lunch boxes. You know, there's a lot of issues. So we would, well, I mean, I can assure you that Katie Kelly did not clear any rights from Nancy Reagan when she set out to write that book. And anyone writing a play about, I just read that... Um, Jane Fonda, did you see it? In yeah, Variety? yeah. In Variety, that Jane Fonda is supposed to play Nancy Reagan in a mm, great yeah. casting, but ah. you know, but you know, they don't, they really won't need rights. But you know, presidents of the United States are a little different than actors, and actors, in fact, not under copyright, the 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 um, the heirs of famous actors in most states even have some continuing rights in that actor's mm -hmm. persona, but that's way off my no, no, no. subject. Yeah, that's not that's copyright. We're only talking about copyright. We're, and, I mean, what could be more boring than copyright? <laughs> yeah. Well, does anybody have, we'll take some questions now. Uh, I actually have three. Can I do them really fast? Uh -huh. Do you mind? No, and I'm just going to repeat them so that we get Oh, okay. Get um, first, uh, <laughs> uh, a work that, say, from your example, a 1,500 work but is published in several different versions, can a publisher of a version copyright that version? Well, what's a version mean? I, in other words, uh, uh, an ancient playwright from the 1500s, and there are several versions of the script, and some publishers publish one version, some publish the other. If you use one of those versions, is that, well, even though the, the author 
himself is not under copyright. Could the version be? Well, let me ask you a question back because sure. I want to understand. So I read a book a couple weeks ago called The Swerve, mm -hmm. which is which is about the uh, Roman uh, poet philosopher Lucretius. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Lucretius was translated from the. Uh, original Latin, the only copy of the work was found in some monastery in the 1400s, okay? Since then, a bunch of poets, uh, ha a lot of poets, have themselves translated Lucretius, you know, into poetry, starting with the original Latin version. So each those of those poetic versions... I'm not talking about translations, I'm talking about an English writer who, where several versions of the same script might be available. But when are those versions? You mean Shakespeare in different folios? Well, for example, that would be a good example. Well, Shakespeare, you're talking, all those versions are from before 1923, right? Absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. A publisher can't copyright. That's my you couldn't, question. Well, a publisher can't copyright something. That in order to have a copyright in something, you have to create something copyrightable. Okay. And just by copywriting something doesn't mean you will it's copyrightable. I mean, you can't, you can't, again, you, you couldn't make a list of the streets in New York in order, mm -hmm. you know, in order from beginning to end and just send that into the copyright office and say, I want to copyright that. I still don't think I'm answering your question. No, you actually are. You actually okay. are. And then my second question is, uh, I know um, music and lyrics is about 67 years. Do literary works, is it about the same time? All copyright is the same. I knew somebody okay. was going to ask me that. Okay. And I, I'm sure I'm going to be wrong. I'll be able to correct this on the tape, right? But, it's, yes. but under the current copyright law, I think it's life of the author plus 75 years. Okay. I might be wrong about that. I'm going to feel really bad if I'm wrong about that. So one thing I meant to check before I came in here. So, okay, yeah. And then finally, uh, if you do an adaptation, say, of this mystical uh, English-speaking 1500 playwright. You're English. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm English, and I do an adaptation. Yeah. How do I get, may I get the copyright for that adaptation a if it's very creative, and how do I go about doing that? If it's a play? Yeah. Fill out a form PA for performing arts online mm -hmm. with the copyright office. Send them whatever it is right now, a hundred bucks, I think, mm -hmm. and claim copyright in your adaptation. Okay. Or your translation, or whatever you've done. It's pretty simple to copyright something. The copyright office, if they don't think it's copyrightable, will bounce it. You know, there's appeals procedures both ways. People can, people can appeal and say the copyright office should not have accepted a copyright because it's not original or it's a lie or that person stole it. And the copyright office also can bounce something and you can appeal and say, nah, this really should be copyrighted. I, please tell me if I'm not loud enough. I know how boring it is in the back row. I can't hear. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a piece right now that uses a lot of historical documents from the 1930s. Presidential speeches, uh, court briefings, stuff like that. Do I need to seek out copyright if I'm quoting directly from them? If, or it's if, a, if, we, if, I, if I acknowledge where it's coming from at the end of every time somebody quotes from it. Well, that's a pretty broad question. But okay. if you're really talking about presidential speeches yes. and newspaper accounts, yes. you know, I mean, maybe you're using quote marks, maybe, I mean, in a book there wouldn't really be any issue right. about that at all. And on stage, there's pro if that's what you're talking about, there's probably not much of an issue. Presidential right. speeches, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Okay. They're, they're public, public records are not really an issue. Thank you. Right. Um, I have a pretty good big complicated uh, issue for play that was based, based by an uh, online international bookseller, book that is from Italy, sold in the States, is a mess. 
a lot of people involved. If the production doesn't have a lot of money for a lawyer, what do we do? You're screwed. <laughs> pick a different, pro pick right, a different find project, a, find right? Find an easier property to, yeah. to deal with. I mean, if you came in and said you wanted to do a musical based on the motion picture Titanic, it probably would have to be directed by Michael Bennett, starring Bernadette Peters, and produced <laughs> by actually, the Actually, they, they, they <laughs> want us to do it. The only problem is, like, it's, it's complicated, and we don't get no lawyers. So. It, it, well, the there only thing... There is a way to, to have to access, you know... There is there's an organization, a wonderful organization, called Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And if your income falls below a certain level, and Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And if your income falls below a certain level, and you don't mind waiting on their waiting list for a while, you'll get some brilliant corporate lawyer or litigator at some big firm who wish they were an entertainment lawyer or a copyright lawyer, who will do a really good job looking into the issue okay. for you. You could try that. Yeah. Thank you. I'm working on a project right now about an artist who died within the last, say, 20 years. And we'd like to use some of her paint reproductions of her paintings in the play. Can we do that without permission from her estate? We, the, my law firm, my partners and I. Yeah, I'm let sorry, me just repeat that it. quickly. Oh, it. yeah, you can I'll do it. it. Yes. The question is, there's a play about an artist who died in the last 20 years. And there's a desire to incorporate some of the paintings into the set, into the right. stage, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the set. Mm -hmm. um, uh, do you need permission from the estate? And what I'm saying is that in our practice, we would say yes. We would tell, and the movie studios certainly agree, that if you're going to use a copyrighted piece of artwork on stage, um, you're going to want to get permission from the copyright owners to use that artwork on stage, there was a really, there was a case involving that movie Brazil by Terry mm -hmm. Gilliam. Anybody oh, yeah. remember that? Oh, yeah. Where they made him edit the picture or something truly astounding to take out some scene because they, they did it. The picture was done and they hadn't cleared the rights in a particular, well, a chair or a piece of art or something. A chair's not copyrightable. Something copyrightable. And it was really a big issue. And if the if the um, if a museum has a particular painting, do you have to get permission from the museum? Well, you get into really interesting questions there. Where are you going to get your Where are you going to get your image from? Um, I would assume that there are uh, photographs of certain paintings that we would then have reproduced. So the so a the photographer probably has a copyright in their photograph. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and B, the museum or the owner of the painting has a claim in the copyright in the painting itself. So no, none of this is simple, which is why you want a nice 15th century painting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so if I wanted to adapt a piece of work Okay, so the, qu the question is, if you want to adapt a work, uh, what would the structure of the contract be with the underlying copyright owner? For example, would you given, be given a period of time at a zero or a low price? Yes, the work's not already sold. If the work, and the answer is, it's totally, completely, 100% negotiable. There's no law 
Law has nothing to do with the control. Law has nothing to do with what you pay for a copyright or what the conditions are of acquiring the copyright. All the law cares about is that you make a deal with the copyright owner, and after that, it's a contract. It's a deal. So you can, you see a lot of stuff. You see estates which will give somebody six months for free to try and make something happen with a particular work. Maybe they'll even say, it doesn't have to be an estate, it's just a, you know, maybe they'll even say, you see what you can do with this work for six months, and we won't let anybody else do anything with this work for six months, and you don't have to pay anything. And then you have other deals where you can't lift a finger without paying 50 or $100,000. So, so I can't, I mean, the, the deals are structured well, I mean, I can talk for a minute about how the deals are structured on a normal deal for an underlying work for the theater, not for the movies, and if you remind me, I'll give you the major distinction there, but for the theater, you pay money for a series of options set on a musical, probably four, on a musical based on a novel, you, which you haven't started to write yet, or at least you can't admit you started to write it yet. Okay, you pe you're going to take four one-year options on this novel, and I made it up, but four, because the yeah. thinking used to be three, now it's four. The thinking used to be that you acquire rights in the novel, so you need the first year to find a composer, lyricist, and book writer, and you need the second year to write the book, music, and lyrics, and you need the third year to raise the money and get the show up. But now you need the fourth year because there's no theaters available and your stars are busy and the director doesn't want to do it yet. So, yeah, normally four one-year up, which is interesting because the Dramatist Guild APCs are not set up for four years. They're set up for uh, three years for a musical and t uh, two years, I think, or a year and a half for a straight play. But you have to mess around with that. And so you're going to have three one-year options, but in the theater business... Options are exercised by putting the show on before a paying audience. That's a key distinction. In the movie business, you're going to have the same options, but those options are going to be against a purchase price or a pickup price, mm -hmm. which is a balloon payment and all other things being equal. Once that balloon payment is made, the movie studio or the producer is going to own the underlying work forever, whether or not they ever make the movie. So Hollywood, there's jillions of books which are unavailable, especially for movies, because the purchase price was paid, you know, back in 1943 or in 1954, and the movie was never made. And I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of what you can negotiate. You know, a powerful underlying rights um, owner can negotiate a, a turnaround or a reversion of the property. It's true in the theater, too. You see it all the time in movie deals in the theater now that they pay their options, they put the play up, on, even on Broadway, because there's different requirements on what it means to put the play up. I mean, from your point of view, you want to say that the option is exercised if you put the play up in your parents' recreation room. And what the underlying rights owner wants to say is, is that the option's only exercised if you run the play at the Imperial for six months. So, you know, that, so there's, you know, and then the truth lies somewhere in the middle. But even on those kinds of deals where you do run the play in the Imperial for six months, especially for movies, for the last 10 or 15 years, there's been negotiated points in time where the movie studio gets the rights back to permit another musical to be made based upon the movie. 
normally they can't take your musical away from you. You you still have the rights to do your musical, but there but conceivably there could be another musical. I never worry about that too much because I figure that if your musical so howled at the moon that uh, that you know you couldn't make whatever you had to make after five or ten years, that no one else is going to do another one for another 30 or 40 years anyway. So it doesn't worry me too much. And just The Wild Party, was that under public domain that Wild year? Wild Party was strange. I mean, that was an interesting... That was an interesting. I didn't work on Wild Party, either one of the two <laughs> Wild Parties. And so this is strictly my recollection. But I recollect that The Wild Party was in the public domain in the United States and not in the public domain in England, mm -hmm. what I was talking to you about before. So one of the producers of one of the wild parties here, unusually, went ahead with their wild party, even though they couldn't take it to London. Mm. I'll come back to that. And the other wild party producer could take their wild party to London. And while both of the productions were quite good, and to my mm. thinking, neither one of them were successful. But that's really important. I said to you before that something can be, in, can be available in the United States and not available in England or Germany. That's death to an awful lot of serious production deals. Because what producer wants to dump 10 or 12 million in, in the United States and find that they can't take the show to London because they can't clear the British copyright? So you'll, you'll, you'll see from time to time a deal where you have to clear the copyright in foreign countries, even though you don't have to clear the play in the United States. Boy, I went took way off on that question. Did I answer it? Did I come close to answering it? Oh, okay. Yeah? Yeah. I think my, uh, my question is related to that last question, I think. Because um, what, you're, what you're describing in terms of the type of option and so forth that you would have to buy to get the rights to a novel that is under copyright sounds like something the producer would do. And especially if a producer, if they think the play is going to be on Broadway versus off-Broadway, regional theater... Um, whereas my question is, if I'm just the writer and I just want to write an adaptation of a novel that I think would make a perfect musical, how do I even get the author's agent interested in talking to me if I don't have the money up front or something it's like that? It's unbelievably difficult. And I, first of all, I want to say that when I told you that you do option payments and then in the theater you put the you exercise the option by putting the play up, you you're clearly not going to lose sight of the fact that you have ongoing financial obligations after that, right? Everybody knows that, right? right. That you have to pay royalties to the underlying rights owner, that you're going to share the sub-rights with the underlying rights owner, that they're going to share in the cast album and the merch and, and sub-rights like stock and amateur, everybody knows that, right? So the answer to your question is this. Um, when I represent authors, and I represent a lot of authors, I represent a lot of producers and a lot of authors, um, when I represent authors, they usually can't afford what I would like them to do. Because what you really want is for the author, is your authors to acquire the rights. Because if, if the producer acquires the rights, um, even if it was the author's idea, there's always the chance that the producer will acquire the rights and then tell the author to scamper away, even though it's their idea. And that's really an issue. So I, I really, I haven't got any great advice for you on what you do. It's just a question of negotiating power, how much, how, how much mate. See, I'm required to talk to other lawyers when people have lawyers. I can't talk directly to people who are clients on a deal, but you can. 
So if the agent's giving you, if the lawyer, or the agent's giving you a hard time, I guess you can try and reach the novelist and say, "Why don't you give me a break here for a year and see what I can do?" But I, I thought about doing that as well, and I thought if I could show her like part of the script and some song lyrics that she could get excited about, then that might work. But now you're saying that I'm even breaking the law by writing that before getting the permission. So. I know I'm seeing it. Yeah. I know I'm technically right. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not aware of anybody who really got in a lot of trouble for, you know, writing song lyrics and not doing anything with them at all, uh -huh. except saying, do you like these? But, you know, I'm a lawyer. All I can do is tell you what the law is. That's all. I can't, I can't, I'm not much, I am, that's a lie. I'm, I'm also pretty practical. So, but you have to decide for yourself what the practicalities. I mean, look, maybe you could save yourself a lot of time. If you call her up and say, I'd like to do this, would it be okay? And she says, yeah, sure, can't hurt. That could be a letter. Dear Miss So-and-so, thanks for letting me do this. I'll do this and send these to you in a few months. And you can see what you think, okay? I mean, something like that. That's a perfectly, I mean, not as great as an 80-page contract signed by both parties, but not bad for establishing you had permission to do what you wanted to do. Because look at the, heart, well, look at the heartbreak on my example of the Boris Karloff movie. Yeah. Before. I mean, these guys had spent years writing this thing, and it was really good. I mean, you really want to spend a year to call up some person and have her say, I would never dream of allowing this to be turned into a musical. I don't even want to look at what you've done. So, you know, you have to be practical under the circumstances. And you do have to remember that even though the benefits of turning something into a musical are so clear to you, they are not. They really are not. I mean, I know this from experience. They are not clear That's great. to everybody else. So, and you can tell them financially why and creatively why and and you know, you can tell them why it would enhance the value of their property, but they they may not see that at all. That's great. That's right? really great. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, you could ask yourself if T.S. Eliot would really have been happy. Surat. Um, is there a difference between the words adaptation inspired by New translation and updated version. I mean, Yeeks. Which, yeah. well, set aside. Inspired by is that mushy area that we okay. talked about before, where I gave you the example of um, of the of the of the uh, novel Soldier of the Great War mm -hmm. that I loved so much, which was inspired by, which was a riff on a painting. I mean, they couldn't violate the copyright in a painting. It was a novel. Okay, so, you know, inspired by means you haven't taken any copyrighted material. It just sort of inspired you. But a translation, yeah, sure. A, a, I'm not, a translation for me is a translation. It's from one language to another. And that's different than, what did you say? A new adaptation. A new adaptation. A new adaptation. I mean, there are so many. Well, but, yeah, there's, there's minute differences between, you know, it, it doesn't matter. The question is... Have you have you infringed on the underlying copyright or not? That's the only issue. Hi. Hi. Uh, obviously, once a musical exists, lots of people own the rights to it, and you know, and let's say you were looking to uh, you know rewrite a script of something that was like sixty or seventy years old. Uh -huh. um, is there a basic way that you would start to go about that, or is it more going through the estate of the uh, just? all of the different parties for all of the different, 
you know, is it really just case by case, or is there well, some sort of blanket way you would be? It's definitely that? case by case. Yeah, because, that's what I, I mean, look, <laughs> you all know that there's a concept in the theater of merger, and sure. merger means that the underlying work, and the book, music, and lyrics merge into a single work, and for all intents and purposes, except individual songs, you know, can't be separated again. So once a work has merged, um, normally the underlying rights owner has nothing else to say. And control is now in the composer, book writer, and lyricist. That's mm -hmm. normally the case. So if you wanted to take some musical from the 1930s sure. and adapt it now, mm -hmm. at least all the deals I've worked on have been deals with the compose with the heirs of the composer, okay. lyricist, and book writer. I mean, I, I mean, me. If I, if somebody wants to do something based on a 1930s or a 1940s musical, I usually pick up the phone to Sarge Aborn at Tams Whitmark or <laughs> Freddie Gershon at MTI and say, "This yours? Sure. <laughs> Who you deal yeah. with?" And you know, start working more or less. Start working, or can I deal with you, Freddie? And you know, and start working. And it's easy there. if it's a Richard Rogers piece. It's real <laughs> easy. You call Ted Chapin right. or Vicky right. Traub right. and say, "Can I? You know." What, you know, do you, can I please adapt uh, South Pacific? And then you get your answer. You get your answer. Probably immediately you get your answer, and then you, proceed, you, you proceed accordingly from there. But, but, you know, on the other hand, if you, you'll, frequently people would like to do um, a musical based on an old movie. Sure. But in the old days, when the movie studios acquired rights in a novel, the novelist reserved stage rights. Mm -hmm. Or under the under the WGA agreement for original ideas, screenwriters and movie studios have different set of rights in the same movie. So under those circumstances, you have a whole string of people. I mean, you'll hear a novelist say, I reserve rights in my novel. The studio has nothing to do with it until you realize that your composer, book writer, and lyricist actually want to use stuff from the movie that's not in the novel. So now you got to do a deal with both the movie studio and the novelist, okay? And sometimes the novelist wrote their novel based on some separately copyrighted short story. I mean, you can get... It's possible to get strings of three or four things to... You know, uh, an old movie based on an older Broadway play based on an older novel where where rights have reverted or everybody's holding on to you know their particular cluster of rights and you have to do a lot of different deals and it can be really complex and really expensive there's no other way to put it really and some talk about when a work is done as a parody of like a movie. I'm just wondering what that great it's area that is. It's parody. The question is about parody. It is an incredibly complex area, and you'll need to get my partner, Emilio Rosini, who is an expert on parody, back in here to talk to you about parody, because I am so incapable. I can barely talk about, talk about fair use, and I certainly can't talk about parody, which is a, a world unto itself. Has that been a common thing lately? Parody is yeah. an issue that comes up with great frequency. Yeah. Whether something is really a parody or whether it's a ripoff of the underlying copyright. Sure. And it sort of decide, depends on whose side you're on yeah. at the moment, what it is. Yeah. And it's a very good topic right now because we have Silence playing, Silence the Musical playing based on Silence of the Lambs, a huge studio movie. Yeah. Right? Jonathan. 
Uh, yeah, this is a question about um, the relationship between music publishing and music copyright. Um, say I've acquired permission, not exactly the dot sign on the dot line, to use a certain number of songs by a composer. That composer sells their catalog to a licensing firm. Um, do, and he, this, this composer has had a lot to say about how his songs are used up to this point. What happens to that? You have to Does everybody get that? Every, the question yeah. is, is between, well, I guess the question is about control of songs which have now passed from the composer to a music publisher. And the real issue there, the specific issue there, is who controls the grand rights. Grand rights, grand rights as opposed to small rights. Grand rights, for simplistic purposes, is the use of a song to move the action forward in a, in a musical, we'll say a stage musical for the moment. True for movies too. So, you know, you look at a lot of things to see if something is a grand right. You know, is it is it used to move a plot point forward? Are people wearing costumes? Is it part of a musical? You know, you know how is it used? Broadway composers, even when they give their work to music publishers, normally retain grand rights for themselves. Rock musicians normally do not, or had not. And the people are way more aware of the theater now that the theater started doing so great. You know, in ways that they were never wildly aware of it in the mid-1970s when I started doing this stuff. So you'll find on rock music or popular music that publishers often do control the, the grand rights, and rights have to be acquired from the publisher. But, you know, you can order copyright reports. You can ask people in contracts to make representations and warranties. I represent and warrant that I own these rights, that I have the right to sell you these rights, and that if anybody sues over these rights, I'll protect you, you know, I'll indemnify you. You can do all that stuff, but that's all you can do. You can't, there's not much more you can do than tr try and satisfy yourself and your lawyer that you're getting the rights from the right person or company and that they have the right to give it to you. Hi, my question is on, uh, I have an option on a play. The playwright and I, it was my idea to do a digital short <coughs> to get the play uh, introduced to people to tr try and see producers. My question is, the play has a copyright, and of course, you know, we put C, 2012. Do we need a new copyright for the digital short, even though it has much of the dialogue that's in the play? Do, do we need a, to do another copyright to protect uh, uh, that? Um, uh, I should do this in a heavier Yiddish accent, <laughs> but couldn't wait. <laughs> it's as simple as that. What, okay. what if? Give, you know, stick a copyright notice on it and send it to the copyright office. They'll take it. It's an adaptation of the play. I mean, I mean, you know, is there going to be a lawsuit? Probably not. Is someone going to claim the play fell into the public domain because you did a digital short? No, Probably it's, not. it's with the playwright. Yeah, uh, my question is about other people thinking, oh, this is a good idea. And We well, can't protect ideas, but set the, it, can, it but, can't hurt okay. to copyright your digital short. I want you to pick a couple people way I know, in the that's back. what I'm trying so to do I now. So I can say I don't hear them. Back. <laughs> no, in the, yeah. Oh, uh, a question about uh, a new piece that is partially public domain, partially completely in the work. Um, what challenges are there for getting a copyright for that? So I'm not sure. If well, uh, the pi there's a piece that's partially public domain 
and partially copyrighted. Is that because it's in public domain in some countries and not others? Or because it's comprised of a couple of different pieces? Option B. Option B? Yeah. It's comprised of a couple... So you've got to clear the copyright in the pieces that are copyrighted. Well, I, sh I should clarify that. So, um, say, say it's half Shakespeare and half something a, a new playwright is writing currently and would like to get a copyright for their own lines... They, oh, they absolutely, positively can. Okay. If you if you write if you write something based on Shakespeare, if you adapted, if you if you translate a Shakespeare play into French, the U.S. Copyright Office doesn't have to be in English to be copyrighted in the United States. The U.S. Copyright Office will take a copyright in your French translation. If you if you rewrite if you rewrite Shakespeare, you can you can copyright your version of Shakespeare. I mean, there's a place on the forum to say what copyrightable material have you added and you'll say, you know, re rewriting sections, adding characters. Uh, sure, you can, as long as you've created copyrightable material and as long as you haven't violated any underlying copyright, which you have not, you can get, you can get a copyright on your new material, your new copyrightable material, no problem. When we, when my clients have writers... Sometimes my clients will bring in a writer to try to rewrite the book of a famous old musical. And these writers are powerful enough that you can't say to them, as you would like to do, whatever you write, this estate owns. But what you can do is say, if we don't move forward with you, that you'll own whatever copyrighted material you've added, but you won't own anything else. So, you know, if they invent a new, you know, if they invent a new bunch of dialogue, you know, they'll probably own the, you know, the copyrightable part of the dialogue. Yeah, I'm assuming all of this also translates to um, creating a ballet or a dance based upon a film or another source material. Well, that's a really interesting question, because if you're talking about a ballet, Yes. Set aside Maury Eston's magnificent Tom Sawyer Ballet, which is based on the public domain. It was brilliant. The public domain work Tom Sawyer. If you were, I don't see how personally. I cannot see how the. And maybe you could tell me how the writer of a novel can claim that a balletic work or choreography infringes on the copyright. On, on his tangible expression of ideas. You could that's that's on tape, right, Ellen? Uh, I mean yeah. that's inspired by but you maybe you could tell me. I just don't see I, I, I what if it's following the same storyline? Well you know um, we're, wait, we're you mean that the ballet follows yeah, a storyline? The ballet is following a storyline. You have line. to I mean while it is true that plot is protectable to a certain extent I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess when Maury has scenes in the Tom Sawyer ballet, you know, painting the fence, and Tom and Becky Thatcher and Indian Joe in the cave, you know, I, I'm not deeply moved by the claim of the copyright owner to tell you the truth. That's interesting. I'm not. I mean, I've never faced it. Um, if you, if you wanted to, if you wanted, you want to do a. <laughs> You want to do another. You want to do a ballet based on the movie Titanic. You would just do a ballet based on the sinking of the Titanic, and you wouldn't have any. I'm not. I'm not giving you a great answer because I never thought of it. I mean, I, I never am very. 
how can I put this? I'm, I'm never very worried about my composers violating the copyright in the owner of the underlying novel. I worry about my composer sneaking into Cole Porter's room and writing <laughs> trunk, but that's all that I worry about. I guess it's kind of a follow-up question, but if you are working on something where copyright infringement is not necessarily an issue, but you are inspired by another work, are there laws or rules regarding marketing or merchandising where you can use the title or the author's name in the work by, of the work that you've been inspired by? Yeah, but that's not copyright. You get into really interesting questions of passing off, Lanham Act, um, not getting too technical, but you can't you, I mean, this is way too simplistic a way to say it, but you really can't use somebody else's name to sell your work, you know, and t you get into interesting questions. Well, titles are not, not, not protectable under the Copyright Act. There's still other potential passing off claims that they're, they're confusing, that you're confusing the public, you know, that you're causing, that you're causing the public to think that, um, your play, The Bridges of Madison County, is related to the to the book, The Bridges. You know, so it's a pretty complex area, but you're not free and clear just because you haven't infringed copyright. I mean, I, myself, if you didn't have the rights in Bridges of Madison County, would not let you name your play Bridges of Madison County. I don't know why I thought of that. I never read that book. But the look, <laughs> but the, look the logo is copyrightable. Is that the, right? Well, it's an interesting question. Artwork is copyrightable. So, yeah, and then you start to get into areas between copyright and trademark and stuff like that. But I'm focusing more on a, yeah. on a confusion of the public. You can't sell your product by, by confusing the public about what they're buying. Like, for example, if I wanted to create a series of dance pieces inspired by an album that was recently released by a recording artist. So, you know, we're, we're, we're using music and it's inspired by something that is copyright protected but we're not quite I think you're I mean personally this is music and you're doing a ballet of all original new music which is not based on that music um sure it's, in sure. <laughs> it's inspired by the music sure. but it's not that I mean music. I mean it's like asking for trouble yeah. <laughs> you've, you've written music which is all new and now you're going to say it's inspired by copyrighted music? Well, it's like I'm, an invitation. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of asking a broad question based not on my personal project because you've answered my question already. I'm just kind of trying to figure out the boundaries of this. But it was just a hypothetical. Okay. Yeah. So I told you I'm a pretty practical lawyer, so I do tend to advise my clients not to look for trouble. <laughs> if you're doing a piece based on a living individual, when can you use quotes from that individual? And when are those quotes... Copyrighted. Well, you're getting less now. You're less in plays and more in books, and you're now you're into an area of what's called fair use, mm -hmm. and fair use is a specific, really specific area of the copyright law, which I do know a little bit about, but did not brush up on <laughs> before I came here. But there's four aspects of fair use. Mm -hmm. You know how it's used. Is it competing? How much you use, you know that sort of stuff. But it's a case by case question. And maybe we'll do a future one on fair use and parity. Yeah. Yes, you want my partner to come in and yeah, talk about Yeah, that would be great. Does. That would be great. Yeah, you do. Yep. Do you have advice on contacting a responsible person at a movie studio in order to get permission to begin an adaptation uh, on a classic film? 
Yes. Um, m all the studios these days have people, rights people who are specifically assigned to theater stuff. You really would be better advised to go to the studio with some sort of a known, unless you're a famous director and I haven't met you, for which I apologize. <laughs> but if you're a famous director, ignore everything I'm saying. You can do anything you want. But if, but if you're not a famous director, you would be way better approaching the studio with somebody the studio is familiar with, whether it's an agent, see, it's not, I'm not looking for business, whether it's an agent or a lawyer or maybe even a well-known producer, because it's still the case in Hollywood that if you're told no, no goes in the book. We yeah. told him no. And it's, and it's not, it's, and it's, and it's an indelible ink, the no. So you wanna you wanna take your shot as best you can take your shot. I, mm -hmm. I hope I didn't offend you. No, did no. I offend you? No. Oh, okay. You sure? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I always look that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it is easier. I mean, You're not Michael Bennett, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the um, if you were, that would be quite a story. I actually. <laughs> My gosh, it's the press. You have to say it's an election year? Yeah. I knew Michael Bennett and you, sir. No, Michael. <laughs> so if you, have, if you had a collaborator who's ideally uh, a collaborator who is known to the studio. I can't give you any names, but I can tell you for a fact that I went in recently to, to a studio where I'm known looking for a 70-year-old movie property on behalf of two Tony Award-winning uh, writers and was told no. Who's the producer? No. I said, well, they don't need a producer. Look who they are. And so we know who they are. No. So the studios have gotten uh, increasingly difficult. That's all I can tell you. And they, they also usually require greater payments, well, correct? You have, to, I mean, you have to pay them. It's, well, depends on how you take, I mean, you, you certainly have to pay him more than the initial $18,000 under the dramatist guild that the composer, book writer, and lyricist are allowed to take you. So maybe books are better. <laughs> well, I encourage, you, I, I encourage you all, all of you, to look for books which the studios haven't glommed. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's been all these complaints lately that, um, that, you, that everybody wants to base their musicals based on movies. And I don't buy it. I mean, I think that musicals based on movies are perfectly good. But I once asked Glenn Slater why that was. And he said to me, because unlike Rodgers and Hammerstein, who could get Tales of the South Pacific, um, the movie studios get all the good books. So the only way you can have access to the books now is to go through the movie studios. I found it a very interesting and thoughtful answer. Um, we have time really just for one or two more. In relation to what you just said, as far as... Um, the books at the movie studios have them all. Is there a place to kind of find out about who's got what? Because I know the copyright is one thing, but if the studios have optioned a book, is there a place that you could look? Because if you've, you know, well, the, that information the only thing that I could really think of, um, you're talking about a book that was never turned into a movie? Yeah, I'm saying, you know, one, like of, one of my examples idea. of those books lying around yeah. in the studio, yeah, itself, and, and it you, would probably show up on a copyright. It would. This, the studio in those days would have filed an assignment of copyright once they paid the massive $30,000 to own the book forever. They probably would have 
they probably would have filed it. Not for sure. So again, you might have to do what I said. Start with the publisher of the book. You know, and call up and, and they'll ask you for a letter. They'll write a letter to the ancillary rights department and say, could you please let me know who to contact about stage rights in this book. And if it's been optioned where it's not a permanent transfer of well, rights. I hope that people would know or would tell you the truth. I mean, that. you'd be surprised at the number of times where people don't know, where no contracts exist anymore. I mean, you do the best you can. Time for one more. Um, I'll bet I can squeeze in six more. <laughs> I uh, like a, a children's book, let's say, that has a play adaptation already, but you want to make a musical adaptation? Does it just depend on what the rights, what the playwright, you know, the, the rights he got? Yes. So you have to see what rights he got. You have to see what rights the owner of the children's book retained. And maybe you have to make a deal with one of them. Maybe you only have to make a deal with the playwright. Right. Would you have advice on who to go to first? Well, which is newer? The, play, the stage adaptation, the play, right? Play, but it was done like for just a, like a, a college. I mean, it, it wasn't done in New York or. Oh well, odds on, they didn't even call the owner of the underlying rights, which happens all the time. Under the, which happens all the time. So you know, under those circumstances, maybe you'd better go back it to was the published. But uh, I think probably okay. not. It doesn't really matter who you call first. You're going to figure it out sooner or later. Okay, we'll take one, one more. Yeah. Um, Seven eighteen. Okay. Just a real quick question. Uh, this is about a situation where you have uh, two collaborators who hate each other. <laughs> and you have the permission of one of them. And he says, this, the, the per person who's given me permission said, but I don't know if you'll ever get this because we never talk to each other and it would have to be a joint decision. Does it have to be a joint decision? Well, Can I get the permission of the other astoundingly, guy? No. You're now you're into astoundingly complex areas of copyright law because you're into areas of copyright law which deal with stuff like joint ownership of copyright and whether a, whether a, whether a joint owner can let you have a non-exclusive use of the work. I mean, it's find a different work. <laughs> my standard advice. You don't want to do this. It's not really my standard. <laughs> well, thank you to Elliot Brown. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.